0: Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott.
1: Hello to everyone. Thank you for listening In the last episode, I was discussing what I call relativism's moral argument that attempts to show that moral relativism is true. Allow me to repeat the premises and and the conclusion. Premise one, the diversity thesis. The notions of right and wrong differ from person to person and culture to culture. Premise two, the dependency thesis. Morality depends on human nature, the human condition, human culture, or some combination of the three. Conclusion. Therefore, morality should differ from person to person and culture to culture. First, I have shown that this argument commits what is called the is-ought fallacy. Therefore, that fact alone refutes relativism's moral argument. However, I have decided to give additional arguments against its truth based on the expectation that some atheist might be unconvinced because the argument was so easily refuted. Second, premise one is overstated. Relativists erroneously assume that there are consequently no objective moral truths because cultures disagree about morality. We can imagine relativists saying, if morality were objectively true, why don't people agree on morality in the same way They agree that the sky is blue. I would respond by saying we can use our sense of sight to verify that the sky is blue. But no one of the five senses can reveal moral truths. Can taste, feeling, smell, or sight reveal moral truths? No. We might hear moral truths and acknowledge they are true, but hearing did not reveal them. We get the moral truths by way of a different part of what we are, as a creation of God. The scriptures tell us people are made in the image of God. That's in Genesis one verses twelve through twenty-eight. People also have a conscience. As such, there is a sense in which we are all aware of God's moral law. Paul alludes to this in Romans 2 when he writes of the non-Jews, quotes, they show the work of the law written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's found in Romans 2, verse 15. This does not imply that every human being knows the Ten Commandments, nor the Lord's Prayer. However, everyone has a sense of right and wrong. Relativists might also say, why do some cultures support what we think is evil, such as cannibalism, while other cultures condemn what we think is good or neutral, such as calling cows sacred. We can imagine them also saying, how can you say that what the Nazis did in the Holocaust was wrong when they thought they were right? Or, how were the soldiers wrong when they ordered victims into the gas chambers when they were merely following orders given by their superiors. My response to these relativistic questions is to point out that we are all responsible for our actions, regardless of what we may claim we are thinking. Though there are moral disagreements among cultures, there are, nevertheless, plenty of agreements Anthropologist Solomon Ash writes, We do not know of societies in which bravery is despised and cowardice held up to honor, in which generosity is considered a vice and ingratitude a virtue. C.S. Lewis invites us to consider the essential unity of the moral doctrines of different civilizations and cultures. He writes, I know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations and different ages have had quite different moralities. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis says, quote, Some of the evidence for this I have put together in the appendix of another book, The Abolition of Man. There, uh, Lewis described several moral beliefs held in common by nearly all cultures, such as care for one's parents and promote justice and honesty. He wrote, Men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone. But they have all agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. Second, though some skeptics can equivocate on this, personally, I think any rational person will agree that there are some things that are truly evil, like the Nazi Holocaust in World War II. Those events is why Hitler was called a madman. Other practices, like killing innocent people just for the fun of it, infanticide, more than 100 million deaths by communist political regimes in the 20th century, and harvesting vital organs from the Falun Gong community in present-day communist China to be sold at an international market, these are all examples of evil practices. Third, just because the majority of any particular group thinks something is right, does not make it right. It would be very easy to say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Is the relativist really prepared to argue That if the majority of Americans approved of slavery or cannibalism, then, as a result, slavery or cannibalism would be right in the U.S. Or, if a large group of American females approved of sacrificing their babies to the god of promiscuity, would that make it right? Premise two is also problematical. Remember, it asserts that morality depends on human nature, the human condition, or human culture, or some combination of the three. First, a moral relativist might make the claim that morality could depend on human nature. For instance, some people believe that right and wrong are determined by the ability of humans and other animals to experience pleasure or pain. This view is known as ethical hedonism. The ethical hedonists believe that it is always wrong to cause pain and always right to cause pleasure or at least to minimize pain. One person who holds this view is Peter Singer, an Australian philosopher who has taught at Princeton University. Because Singer holds that it is wrong to do anything that causes pain to conscious beings, he has become an opponent of capital punishment and an outspoken proponent of vegetarianism. Not only is it wrong, he argues, to cause pain to other human beings, But because he considers animals to be conscious beings, it is also wrong to cause unnecessary pain to other animals. Because humans do not need to eat animals to survive, causing pain by killing them for food or clothing, in his mind, is immoral. According to Christian theology, human nature, unaided by the Holy Spirit, is not to be trusted. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 gives the distressing picture. If a person is not made spiritually alive by trusting in Jesus, then he is, quotes, dead in trespasses and sins, unquote. Realize this is not referring to physical death, rather to spiritual death, It is a factual statement of everybody's spiritual condition outside of Christ. The person in this description is now walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And this is all traced to their trespasses and sins, thereby describing a morally depraved condition. John Stott says, Before God, we are both rebels and failures. End as a result, we are alienated from the life of God. That's found in Ephesians 4, verse 18. For true life, that is, eternal life, is fellowship with the living God. We have peace with God and access to Him into His grace. Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Spiritual death is the separation from Him which sin inevitably brings. Quotes, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear, That is found in Isaiah 59, verse 2. The biblical statement about non-Christians being dead raises problems for many, because they do not understand that this refers to spiritual death. That means separation from God. A person can have a vigorous body of an athlete, a lively mind of a scholar, or the vivacious personality of a film star. But if that person has no fellowship with God through faith in Christ, then he is spiritually dead. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit, having no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his reality, no familial connection to him, no reason to call God Abba Father, and no fellowship with his people. So we should not hesitate to affirm that that person is spiritually dead, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be. To affirm this paradox is to become aware of the basic tragedy of human existence without God. I want to end this episode with a quote from a sermon by George G. Parker on decision. He says... The Bible is a book of decision. Whether we read the Old Testament or the New Testament, it confronts men with the inescapable necessity to make up their minds. It unashamedly competes for men's minds. Such a book of decision fits squarely into our day and age. The biblical theme is set there in the book of Joshua. Quote, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served or the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. End quote. That's decision. Elijah puts the theme in in all his derisive satire, quotes, how long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. But the people answered, not a word. In quotes. That's indecision. The parable of the prodigal has it And when he came to himself, he said, I will arise and go to my father. That's decision. Paul's preaching pronounces the theme as he stood and changed before Festus and Agrippa. And Agrippa said, Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Almost? Maybe? But not quite. That's indecision. The Christian faith demands of us something far more than Agrippa-like indecisions. It demands decision. The Bible says, God has done something for us. God has acted in Jesus Christ. The Lord God himself was directly involved in the most cataclysmic, the most miraculous event in all history the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can't ignore God. This is mankind's greatest delusion, that God can be ignored if we choose. But you can't get away from God. We can no more ignore him than we can ignore atomic power or Russian communism or the sun in the heavens. We are his children. This is God's world. In this world, he directly and unequivocally acted in the drama of human history through Jesus Christ. Ignore him? Indeed, life would be much more simple if we could, but we can't. The theme set by Joshua persists to this very moment and this very place, but now that decision is personified in Christ. Choose you this day whom you will serve? Amidst the battle for men's minds to answer, almost you persuade me to be a Christian, is no sufficient answer. The Bible is a book of decision, Christian faith demands decision.
0: Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address. Doug Apple at wave94.com and be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6:45 p.m. on wave94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app defending and commending the faith with Joe Mott